Jakarta, Indonesia is on track to be one of the next hotspots for COVID-19. And Jessica Washington is Al Jazeera's correspondent there. Like the rest of us, she's been trying to get her work done. But she's also trying to stay a little bit closer to home. So I am getting to know my neighborhood a lot better. I live in the city center area of Jakarta. And Jakarta has a pretty bad reputation for its traffic. And there was one day that I woke up and I looked out my balcony and I was like, wait, what is that? When I moved in, I actually didn't realize that I could see mountains from my balcony. So yeah, now I, I do see the mountains. It's nice to wake up to something like that. But you know that possibly the reason for the clearer air is because of restrictions around the virus. The city is different and it has a different feel. It's not as energetic and that's that's sad, you know. It's it's sad that the city and that many countries around the world are not like they would normally be. I'm Malika Bilal and this is The Take. Right now, Indonesia is going through what many countries were facing weeks, even months ago. An increasing number of COVID-19 cases, an increasing number of deaths, lack of testing to track the virus, and something else, something other hotspots haven't faced. A healthcare system with very few doctors from the start. And now, the Indonesian doctors trying to keep people from dying are dying themselves. So we wanted to know why, and if this country is as safe for the people who live there as the government says it is, or if this new virus is breaking the healthcare system apart. I arrived here actually just, it was in February, so I haven't been here for that long. The outbreak had already begun, but the threat didn't really seem that real. We were moving around pretty freely. There were a few people wearing masks around the streets. Indonesia hadn't actually confirmed any cases of the virus. But there was still this sort of suspicion simmering below the surface that it was only a matter of time before there would be confirmed cases. How big a problem is COVID-19 in Indonesia right now? So that's actually, I mean, it sounds like a straightforward question but it is actually one that's difficult to answer. There are just so many unknowns for us right now. Like every country, there's official government data that we get every day in terms of the number of people who've been tested, the number of people who've come back with positive results, and sadly, the number of fatalities. This is constantly changing, but... At the time I'm recording this, the number of cases in Indonesia was hovering near 7,000, and the number of COVID-related deaths was a little less than 10% of that, around 600. The number of deaths matches India, but the number of cases is much less, and Indonesia has about a fifth of India's population. The death rate is high. Every day, some journalists sort of rush out to tweet out that information, and I don't. And the reason for that is... They're just too low to be accurate. We've heard from the Indonesian Doctors Association that by their own estimates, they believe that the actual death rate is double what has been announced by the Indonesian government. 
there's a lot of fear that people are being misdiagnosed and being diagnosed as having dengue fever or other health issues when in fact they actually do have coronavirus. And we've seen some studies by the universities here which say the number of cases is probably only a very, very small percentage of what is actually happening. Mm. And part of the reason for that has to do with the response in the early weeks of this crisis. By the time the virus had already spread beyond China and even beyond the Asia-Pacific, Indonesia still hadn't confirmed any cases of COVID-19. So there was this increasing sense of suspicion about why that hadn't happened. Tell us why it took the government so long to understand what was going on and to act on it. Well, it's a really interesting question, and there are a lot of theories. And the main one is that the government was concerned about the economy and what it would mean for the country if they came down too hard and too early in terms of formulating a serious response to the coronavirus outbreak. And an example of where we can see that is when we think about tourism. So as you would imagine, numbers were down because of the virus. One of their strategies was, well, we don't have any confirmed cases of the coronavirus yet across our country, so why don't we push that Indonesia is a safe place to holiday? Discover Jakarta. Wonderful Indonesia. There was actually a social media campaign planning to recruit influencers, not just from Indonesia, but influencers from the US, from South Korea. Wow. They were genuinely thinking about a huge tourism campaign to sort of revive the tourism economy. And when you look back on that now, it does show a pretty distinct lack of foresight to imagine that somehow a virus that had spread across China, across Asia Pacific, and, and was spreading across the world, that somehow it would miss Indonesia. So you were in Indonesia when the first cases were diagnosed, right? That's correct, yes. It was a woman and her mother. I'm case one, I'm Sita. They were displaying symptoms and we've spoken to them. I guess why I wanted to speak to you was because obviously... They've told us that they sort of insisted that the test had to be done. And at the time they rejected our request because at the time in Jakarta, that was 27th of February, there were only three hospitals that were patients with COVID-19 and even only those three hospitals have the test kits and so in the hospital we were in they didn't have the test kit. They did get tested and treated at, at hospital so it was only actually in March that Indonesia confirmed its first cases of COVID-19 here in the country. That doesn't mean that the virus wasn't present at all it just means that it hadn't been detected. When I hear the story about these two women who tipped everyone off, it could go one of two ways. One, people say, thank you for alerting us, and, you know, mass preparation starts right after that. Or people say, you were the ones who brought it here. What happened in this case? Well, that's exactly right. The hashtag trending was, thank you, patient one. Obviously, a degree of gratefulness towards these women. If this woman hadn't push to be tested, we don't know how much longer the delay would have been for Indonesia to have confirmed that the virus was present in the country. And so patient one was actually a dancer and 
there was a bit of sexist trolling that was targeted at at this woman saying that she was dancing with foreign men and that she had brought the virus to Indonesia, which obviously is not true. An outbreak doesn't start with just one woman and she hadn't actually even traveled. So there were all these lies that were being spread about these women who in actual fact had really done a brave thing by coming forward. Wow. So after the first people were tested, the mother and the daughter, how did things change? I mean, you have to sort of consider the response of the Indonesian government has been pretty slow and pretty piecemeal. Most of the cases are concentrated here in Jakarta. There was a bit of frustration building from local provinces and local administrations. What they were trying to do is stop people from Jakarta spreading the virus in our provinces. Some of them were starting to take matters into their own hands and enact their own lockdowns or their own social distancing restrictions. And so that triggered a bit of a conflict between local administrations and the national government. And then recently we had a move from the national government saying that local administrations would have to seek out permission to enact these sort of social distancing restrictions. Ever since then, we've had a bit more of a coordinated approach. We don't have a lockdown here in Jakarta. It's called mass social distancing restrictions. That means people are encouraged to work from home. Gatherings of five people or more risk a fine, equivalent to $1,000 U.S. Schools are closed. Parks are closed. Museums are closed. Public areas, they're all closed. Public transport is running, but social distancing measures are in place. And then there are the ghosts. (laughs) Yes. Mm. So the ghosts situation is is not widespread. That's just in one particular province. They're volunteers and um, they dress up uh, in these huge white costumes, which actually do look quite frightening. And if anyone is outside their house when they or doing something that they shouldn't be, these ghosts will sort of creep up on them and, and maybe scream a little bit. And of course, that does freak people out, as you could understand. If it's something that works, if it does keep people safe, then I guess that that's a solution for some areas. So ghosts may be helping with the social distancing, but there are other problems. There are not enough doctors in Indonesia, and there never have been. When you look at Indonesia, you've got a country of around 270 million people. Already we've got a situation where there is a shortage of doctors and a shortage of hospital beds And then aside from the situation with COVID-19, we're also facing an outbreak of dengue fever in parts of the archipelago, typhoid. So this is the sort of situation where the healthcare system is generally under strain. And this virus really is testing the limits of just how much can this system handle. China has 20 doctors per 10,000. The US has 26. Italy has 40. There was one doctor per 10,000 Indonesians when this whole thing started. And sadly, even fewer now. So far, we've had the deaths of dozens of doctors, and some of them have actually been dentists. Doctors and dentists who weren't even involved in treating COVID patients, then contracting the virus and dying. Basically, what it means is that patients were turning up to their clinics or to their hospitals 
perhaps not knowing that they had the virus at all. Doctors are often resorting to using rain jackets or plastic bags because they don't have protective gear. So yes, it's true that all countries are struggling and that this is new for all countries, but some countries are struggling more than others and that has to do with preparation and how those early weeks were spent and was that time used wisely. And many foreign nationals who have made a life in Indonesia don't see their future there right now. They're pulling up roots. The advice from embassies, the message that they're reinforcing is that, you know, think about the health of yourself and your family and not just what would happen if you got COVID-19. What would happen if you got dengue fever in the midst of the peak of this outbreak? Would you be able to get treatment in a hospital? Or what would happen if you broke your leg? Would, would it be worth the risk of going into hospital knowing that you could potentially be exposing yourself to the virus? The Australian ambassador actually left Jakarta. Now, it's pretty unusual for someone like an ambassador to leave their posting. And it's pretty unusual for foreign correspondents especially to leave their posting, but that's the reality that many of them have returned to their home countries because the risk is the risk is pretty high. And the foreign minister has pushed back on that, saying foreign nationals will receive adequate treatment. But there are close to 270 million Indonesians relying on this healthcare system and these doctors too. Jessica is staying. Yes, so I'm still here. So how is your reporting happening? What safety precautions are in place for you and your team? The decision to stay on is something that we obviously discuss with headquarters and we need to continually look at the risk. The priority is to keep everyone safe. And so I made the decision to stay on because we're witnessing something pretty huge unfold and it seemed not right to leave and to leave the team as well. And the team are uh, Indonesians. And so we're doing whatever we can to mitigate risk. So the obvious things like wearing masks and gloves and sanitizing constantly, but also just being mindful of how we get around, where we're going. We haven't been to our office in a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. And my camera woman is actually living just a few meters from me now mm, um, in convenient. an apartment. She's very kindly agreed to move. Wow. <laughs> I'm just like letting that all sink in. She moved apartments. Lot. Oh my gosh, it's a lot. That That is a lot. Yes. I mean, I don't think about it too much. We can't, you would drive yourself crazy if you think about the level of risk mm. every day. Mm. And now, while some places around the world are starting to open up, letting people go to work, to parks, to restaurants. Indonesia is shutting down. One thing most people agree on is that the level of risk is increasing for everyone, even those who have lost someone to the virus already. We had a situation a few weeks ago where a family had somehow managed to actually take the body of their loved one from hospital and that body was wrapped in plastic, but they took the body, transported her back to their hometown in their own car, and then proceeded to unwrap that plastic. And obviously, it's just such a sad 
scene that you've got this family who they just wanted to see her. Mm -hmm. They just wanted to see her face. But at the same time, it's not following protocol and it could be putting people at risk. The scenes are so vividly captured in your report that aired on Al Jazeera of these burials that are sparking protests. And what was so striking for me is seeing an ambulance coming down this kind of dirt path and people in the town coming out to block the ambulance, literally. And even though the town leader, I think he's the mayor, is with them to try to tell them this isn't necessary this ambulance needs to pass, they're not able to, and the ambulance has to turn around. Yes, so that's exactly what happened. The local mayor was telling them that there's nothing to be afraid of, and actually the risk of what you're doing right now in terms of gathering in a large crowd and protesting, that's actually much greater. The chance of getting COVID-19 from a dead body who, you know, they can't speak, they can't cough on you, you really can't blame these people because they're just afraid, like many other people around the world. There's so much that we don't know about this virus. And the unknowns just make people more afraid. And in, in Indonesia, that situation is just, it's more pronounced because there's this real fear about undetected cases that even us, when we go outside, we, we just don't know, you know, if you get in an elevator with someone, do they have the virus? But that's the mindset that we have to adopt to keep ourselves, to keep our team safe. So every year in Indonesia, there is this mass exodus of people from the big cities like Jakarta back to their smaller hometowns. And it happens near the end of the Muslim fasting month of Ramadan, which starts this week. This year, the government has announced a ban on that travel because of coronavirus. So what do we know about the ban? and? what it will mean for the people who typically travel to be with their loved ones this time of year. 70 million people will travel through the country. And it usually does happen right before Eid, as you mentioned. But some people have already started their travel and they're, they're making that journey much earlier than they normally would. And the reason for that is because of the virus. They've left the capital city, which we know is the epicenter of the virus, and they are potentially taking the virus back with them to cities and provinces which are even more poorly equipped to handle an outbreak. This is a country that is made up of thousands of islands and the situation across all the provinces is different and varied. There's already not enough doctors and those problems would likely be even more pronounced as you get more and more remote. But it's not just the holiday that's bringing people home. Here in Indonesia, we have a pretty large informal workforce. What that means is that these people rely on a daily wage. They're not necessarily registered or they don't work for a particular formal company. And because of the virus, many of them have found themselves out of work. What we heard from them was that they weren't just traveling because they wanted to celebrate Eid. They were traveling because they didn't have any money um, because their, their work had dried up. There was some back and forth. But just this week, the government formally announced they are banning travel during Ramadan, including travel for Eid al-Fitr at the end of the holy month. But it's still not clear how it will be enforced. So just a few days ago, we heard from President Jokowi that Indonesia will aim to test 10,000 people every day, at least 10,000 people. And that's pretty ambitious, considering how testing has been going 
thus far, it's basically been around sort of the 3,000 people mark. And considering the size of the population here, that means that Indonesia still has one of the lowest rates of testing in the world. And only a few days after the president said that, we've heard from authorities within the health ministry that basically that will be pretty much impossible and uh, it pr probably won't happen. The situation moving forward is we know that things are going to get worse. We've been told that the Indonesian government anticipates that there will be a spike in cases and that May will be the peak of the epidemic here in Indonesia. I know that in some countries the restrictions are reducing as the situation becomes under more control. And we had a conversation with our headquarters to basically say that we're anticipating that we're heading in the opposite direction, that the freedoms that we have in terms of moving around and what we've been able to do, we're concerned that not that we will pull back because of course we'll stay and we'll report the story, but we're going to have to brainstorm and think about how we're going to navigate through this. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Priyanka Tilve, Dina Kispe, Ney Alvarez, Alexandra Locke, and me, Malika Biral. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Our engagement producer is Natalia Aldana. Our executive producer is Stacey Samuel, and our head of audio is Graylin Brashear. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AJTheTake. And if you like the show, give us a review and subscribe. Next week, we hear some secrets to managing this pandemic from people who have been through something like this before. Talk to you then. <laughs>